0: Buddhist Geeks, Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 328, Icons and Iconoclasm in Japanese Buddhism. We're joined again by religious studies scholar Pamela Winfield and Shingon Vajrayana teacher Hokai Sobul to conclude our in-depth comparison of Dogen and Kukai's Paradigms of Enlightenment. This is part two of a two-part series. I want to go back to the to the book a bit and uh, to, to the idea that was for me most exciting and interesting. Um, and and this was the idea that there, in some sense, these two people, um, Kukai and Dogen, were expressing two different paradigms of enlightenment, are two different ways of, of expressing or experiencing it. Um, And uh, Pamela, I was wondering if you could start off by sharing a bit about um, these two different paradigms and kind of how how they're different, you know, how they're unique um, and and kind of what what they are from from your point of view. Uh,
1: Great, thanks. So I think you're referring to uh, the unitive model versus the purgative process.
0: Exactly. exactly.
1: So, yeah, that's my how I try to characterize what I think is going on. in in their uh, respective, as we say, paradigms. So, let's start with some stories. In the Mikyo, that is the Shingon esoteric uh, foundation legend, the esoteric transmission gets um, bestowed to the human race in a that is to Nagarjuna, the the first uh, which they recognize as their first patriarch, and Nagarjuna receives. The two esoteric sutras in an iron tower in southern India, and he receives it from Vajrasattva. And these two sutras are the basis for the kind of paradigmatic uh, two-world mandalas um, of the esoteric Shingon school. So when he enters into this um, iron tower, it's kind of a magical mythological space, and he within the tower are housed all the thousand Buddhas of past, present, and future. So in that, um, foundation legend, we have kind of an expression of time encapsulated within sacred space, you might say. So it's kind of a spatialized time. That's one story. Let's look at the Zen foundation legend. In that story, Nagarjuna, again, um, actually receives the Pratna Paramita Sutras, right, the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras at the bottom, at the Dragon King's palace at the bottom of the ocean. And so he must travel down through the depths of meditative awareness, you might say, to obtain wisdom and then re-emerges, resurfaces as the holder of enlightened wisdom. So it's a process, not a place, really, that um, Nagarjuna in the Zen, tradition uh, that Nagarjuna attains. So instead of having it spatialized time, there's kind of a temporalized space. So it's the process of Nagarjuna going, starting from everyday reality, right, an assertion of forms such as they are, to a kind of a great death, a great drowning of going down and dropping off as, as Dogen calls it. Um, and then resurfacing, a re-emerging, so a reaffirming of form afterwards. So it's a tripartite uh, affirmation, negation, and uh, reaffirmation of of form in the Zen story, in the Zen foundation legend. Um, And I use these foundation legends as kind of paradigmatic anecdotes to try to illustrate how Kukai on the one hand and Dogen on the other envision the enlightenment experience. In Kukai's model, there is the um, idea of Kaji, which has been uh, translated as mutual empowerment between self and Buddha, right? And Buddha being Dainichi Buddha, who is the personification of the world body, Dharmakaya, personification of emptiness actually. Uh, But it's a personified figure, right? And you actually visualize Dainichi, and you have kind of a divine union, a unitive model going on with Kaji in the Mikkyo context. By contrast, in the Dogen Zen, the more kind of process-oriented model, you have that tripartite assertion, negation, and reaffirmation of form, that that threefold, um, you know, I would say process theology, but um, there's no theos there, so uh, I can't say that. But, um, uh, you know, that, that uh, tripartite, very Majyamican, um very Bhava like assertion, negation, and reaffirmation. of mm-hmm. And so that's a purgative process, not a unitive model. Um, then what I do in the book is try to actually <laughs> marshal some other evidence to... Help us explain maybe some of these uh, accounts throughout history that um, talk about, you know, divine union as opposed to dropping off of self and other, right? That that second movement of, of absolute kind of nothingness, as Nishida would say, um, that absolute shinjin uh, Datsuraku, where there's kind of no thought, no mind, no self, uh, absolute kind of suspension of, of um, space-time um, awareness. And what I found was that uh, some of the um, brain studies, actually, there's some neurological uh, or neurotheological evidence that actually does articulate, and have there are brain scans, actually, that kind of show what's going on, perhaps, uh, neurologically in some of these uh, accounts of of altered states, you might say. So I looked at uh, DeKylian Newberg's work at UPenn, that have um, taken functional um, MRIs, I'm sorry, they're PET scans, of uh, Christian contemplatives, as well as Buddhist meditators, um, advanced Buddhist meditators, it's not just novices. Just and um, when the, for example, when the Christian contemplatives uh, feel like they are almost at the height of their meditation or their prayer um, they actually inject, they, they pull a little string and, and um, some radioactive tracers are actually automatically injected and it, it kind of takes a snapshot of their brain um, right then. Uh, same too with the, with the Buddhist meditators. Anyway, what they found was that um, the, the contemplatives who used kind of via positiva, that is used imagery as a, focal, a focusing agent first, reported parts of the brain shut down, um, that there was, um, a feeling of absorption, the, the orientation area in the, in the parietal lobe, um, uh, that when this area of the brain shuts down, there is a sensation that one is absorbed completely into the image. So this is, uh, an expression of that divine union, you might say, or that union mystica in the Christian tradition. Um, on the other hand, there are other uh, experiences um, that they have actually taken snapshots of, right? Where that orientation area in the brain completely shuts down, like in a nanosecond. And this might help to explain um, accounts like Dogen's where, you know, it's Shinjin Datsuraku. There's just dropping off of, of self completely. Now, I have problems with Dekillian Newberg's conclusions because they say that only this divine union happened in Christianity and only this absolute negation happens in Buddhism, right? And when I think that there is evidence in both the Christian and Buddhist traditions for both kinds of of, uh, experiences. But anyway, I found that kind of, uh, that research into neurotheology really interesting because I think it might help to explain maybe what's going on with kaji as opposed to Shinjinjatsaraku, that is that mutual empowerment uh, between Dainichi and self, right? That that one visualizes, right? You actually um, circulate, you visualize mantras circulating through the body of your own body and going into Buddha's body and then circulating back into your body. And so there's this mantric link, linkage, unity between you and Buddha, right? And you visualize that as opposed to this kind of nothing. <laughs> of Shinjin Datsurabu in Zen, or Dogen Zen, I should say. So that unitive model um, versus that more purgative process that you know starts off with form such it is as it is um, radically negates it, but then reaffirms it again. I think is is interesting. <laughs> and actually, I'm going to probably toss it over to the practitioner to to you, Hokai. Does this make sense to you as a practitioner with a background in both Zen as well as Shingon?
2: Yeah, well, uh, my, my exposure to Zen was mainly through its uh, Chinese uh, ah. equivalent ah. Chan, uh, but with a teacher who combined the Lin Chi and uh, Totung, or the equivalent of Japanese Rinzai and Soto lineages. Uh, and it was rather brief, just a couple of years. Uh, but yes, uh, to a, to a great extent, uh, the complementary uh, nature of the approaches is quite evident, especially in the early stages uh, of training. Uh, i would I would argue, however, that uh, toward the uh, more advanced uh, application of the disciplines, we find uh, a loosening of those contrasts. Because uh, in the in the in the Zen training, more and more emphasis is put on maintaining the body mind drop uh, as as a no reference uh, uh, basis for practice in everyday life, uh, and it's a different state when you to use uh, to use an old uh, phrase uh, chop wood carry water w- without reference to self. Uh, Than when you silently sit and do nothing without reference to self, that's that's a very qualitatively different experience. Uh, the daily activity in this uh, perpetual spontaneity in inner silence being a very active and interactive dynamic uh, state, while the sitting meditation being mostly a passive uh, receptive state. Uh, and on the other hand in shingon practice uh, while the uh ritual of establishing an external uh representation uh, an embodiment as you said of uh not just emptiness but also dependent origination in union uh, as as a as a main deity with which one establishes a spiritual umbilical cord uh, mm-hmm. composed of uh sacred letters circulating uh, as you as you chant your mantras and as the deity silently uh, replies uh, the same mantra and as these mantras circulate around the heart and uh, through the head and through the belly of the deity and out of the mouth of the deity and back into practitioner's own body that is only a stage in the internal ritual in the next stage uh uh both of these bodies are actually fused uh as as one uh, so that one dons all the attributes of the deity in first person uh and in the next stage that fusion is dissolved uh, so that uh you, you know there's there's a, there's a very strong emphasis on using uh uh, the the image an internalized image but also an external image uh, you, you do that usually in the presence of the mandalas and in the presence of many other ritual objects that d- demark the ritual space in which the meditation happens uh, but then as you move forward and especially as the emphasis moves towards later uh, state uh, l- later phases in practice uh, the reliance on an external uh embodiment uh and the reliance on on this uh you know literal uh, uh duality of practitioner and and buddha uh is is more and more challenged uh and then uh you know gradually let go of uh, so that one uh internalizes and then even dissolves uh the the sense of internalization uh coming to a point which very much resembles uh, the uh, uh chop wood carry water phase mm-hmm. in, in, in zen practice where uh for example uh, i have seen my own teacher um uh, a shingon master a native japanese uh, perform a very simple calligraphic practice each morning for two hours as as a basic as a basic discipline Um, You know, after all the rituals are mastered, uh, a person finds something very, very simple and basic by which to maintain uh, a a sense of presence, awareness, precision, balance, etc.
1: Lovely. I'm also thinking, I couldn't agree with you more. I think both Kukai and Dogen are ultimately coming to the same realization of form and emptiness, right? Um, That it's just in the beginning, at least in terms of the art or the technique of becoming enlightened, I see Kukai as having kind of a reciprocal understanding of form and emptiness, right? Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. It's kind of a, those are coterminous or um, uh, co-equal terms so that this cup, right, of water ultimately already is empty and I just have to see this, right? Um, For Dogen, in terms of the art of enlightenment, it's more of the process of starting with form, emptying it out, and then coming to see it as empty form. <laughs> but I think ultimately they're coming; they have the same understanding of form and emptiness, maybe just coming at it from the form side or from the emptiness side.
2: Well, they are—they are definitely going through through the same uh, through the same stages, yeah. uh, but using perhaps uh, uh, using perhaps different arcs uh, to get there. Uh, yeah, where where the where the uh, uh, relative emphasis uh, is is different, uh, but you know, in the end, I think they would both agree that uh, to give uh, to give uh, to give more uh, importance to either form of emptiness would miss the entire point, because they are uh, ultimately synonymous. Uh, form is form is nothing else than an instantiation of emptiness. And emptiness is that which which is concealed in the depth of every form, but which makes the form functionally possible. Possible, in the first place, uh, yes. Yeah. If 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 the form wasn't empty, it would be an absolute fact, uh, and it would be impossible to establish interactions to anything uh, to anything else, because you know interaction uh, implies uh, a two-way uh, influence between between two things and two humans, etc. But yeah, I, I would. I would also uh, maybe uh, bring bring in uh, another uh, dimension of this, and perhaps you uh, could say something about that. It comes to mind that Kukai and Dogen uh, functioned, uh, you know, w- were active as teachers in different periods of um, Japanese history. Uh, they were uh, a little bit. Uh, 300 years apart, perhaps a little bit more. Uh, Kukai functioned in the late uh, uh, late uh, 8th and early 9th century. And uh, Dogen uh, was born in 1200, right? And uh, so he was most active towards the middle of the 13th century. So we could say 400 years uh, apart uh, maximum. And they also visited China in a, in a very different period of Chinese history, uh, where in between Kukai and Dogen, there was a huge uh, anti-Buddhist uh, period uh, and, and, uh, and, and the chain of, of uh, uh, at attempts to uh, uproot uh, uh, the uh, strong influence of Buddhism in China, uh, wherein also the esoteric Buddhism in China was nearly completely wiped out, at least institutionally. Uh, also by returning to Japan they both uh, uh, returned to a very different country um, whereas uh, in kukai's time it was his uh, prime prime object to to establish a, a, a relationship with uh, the uh, emperor's court uh, in, in in dogen's time it was a very different uh, time where uh, uh, actually, Dogen tried to stay away uh, from uh, from uh, certain aspects of politics, and where in the Kamakura period uh, he he had to uh, you know he had to meet and uh, respond to a very different social uh, uh, atmosphere. Uh, do, do you see that also reflected in their work?
1: Thanks for that observation. Yes, absolutely. The historical circumstances surrounding Kukai and Dogen could not be more disparate. Um, They are two intellectual giants for their ages, Um, the Heian period and Kukai going to Tang Dynasty uh, China on the one hand to study esoteric Buddhism and then Dogen's case, you know, 13th century um, Kamakura period and going to Song Dynasty China to study Zen. Historically, they have nothing to do with one another. Absolutely, I recognize. The way I kind of glossed it in the book was to uh, examine their claims upon returning from studying abroad in China. In Kukai's case, he comes back. uh, He went abroad to study the way, and he came back fully equipped. That's a letter. That's a quote from a governor of Sanuki's letter. That was in 806. Um, when Dogen, by contrast, returns um, in 1227, he very self-consciously and deliberately says, I went abroad to study away and I returned empty-handed. And this is, right, um, playing on all the generations like uh, of Buddhist masters like Kukai, who had gone to the continent and came back with all the latest R&D, basically, right? All the latest... Um, uh, texts and techniques and images um, from the continent and re-importing them back into Japan and Dogen so very kind of as I say self-consciously says I came back with nothing but emptiness. Now of course he didn't. He came back with yeah. lots of stuff. Well, not lots. Not as much as Kukai. He yeah. Kukai actually blew a 20-year government stipend in two years on all this uh, this treasure trove of, of mandalas and texts and, and uh, ritual implements, um, much to the the emperor's dismay. But um, Dogan is is knows what he's saying, and he's um, he's definitely messaging that he's got something more than just sutras in his tool belt now, right? He's coming back as the holder of enlightened wisdom. Um, he has yep. experienced, he has tasted emptiness, um, and that is what he's going to transmit. So in their works and in their agendas, really. This kind of plays on um, my larger observation that, you know, the Kukai's Mikyo spatialized times, he really wants to ground a new form of Buddhism in Japanese soil. He's going to construct, he's going to build it up, literally, in, in its all of its spatial visual material forms. For Dogen, the agenda is different. I think he wants to extend and perpetuate the lineage in time. So his agenda is not so much the the buildings and and the the institutional um, or visual material culture of Zen. It's his I think his preoccupation is following his master's um, admin of his master's uh, charge to go and extend the the Dharma in Japan, right up in the mountains, not to uh, not to stay in dusty gray castle towns right but rather mm-hmm. to go up into the mountains and train a few select or even a part of a few select disciples and and uh, and maintain the dharma um, so his priority is to extend the lineage through time um, and his notion of time is very idiosyncratic to boot, because once you have the true dharma eye right once you become a Buddha, basically, then you are automatically united with all past Buddhas, uh, actually past, present, and future Buddhas. He has a very interesting um, trans-historical, non-linear vision of time in Dogen's case. So that's really interesting. So in terms of their overall works, in terms of their overall um, agendas um, and their oeuvre, you might say, I do see a difference. I see um, a definite focus or emphasis on the spatial aspects of nikyo versus the temporal aspects of Zen.
0: Okay, cool. Here's a, uh, we got a, que- a good question here from, from someone who's tuning in live. Um, so this is from, uh, John Simon who I know personally and who's an artist himself. Um, he said, can you address the difference? And I'll throw this out to both of you, and and you can each respond however you like. Can you address the difference between how the two schools used imagery in teaching, how they each saw the role of image in practice?
1: Okay, would you like to go first?
2: Yeah, thank you. Uh, So uh, in Zen, image is uh, not done away with completely. That's definitely the case, but it's used in more indirect form. The the examples being, uh, of course, in the ritual context, the uh, images of patriarchs and lineage masters which hang on the walls, Uh, the uh, practice of uh, drawing Enso in Japan or the famous circle with a brush, uh, which is uh, a calligraphic, uh, one dimension of calligraphic practice in Zen schools. Uh, and uh, also an example being the famous uh, 10 ox herding pictures and uh, some other versions which have a uh, le- lesser amount uh, of pictures in, in, in the same sequence. Uh, but so th- definitely in Zen, there is a place for using images uh, as, uh, as uh, metaphors on one hand, uh, as uh, instantiations in the case of Enso. On the other hand, instantiation, meaning a direct representation of something that is not just a symbol, but also an example, uh, an immediate example of it, uh, which, which somehow more efficiently demonstrates the energy of the performer. In the case of Enso, uh, it is believed that the movement uh, can be very skillful and yet cannot completely deceive someone who knows how to look and that uh, the, uh, the, the, the specific uh, uh, stage of uh, wakefulness and that specific degree of presence can be directly detected through the quality of the movement and the trace left behind by the ink. So, yes, there is a place for, for uh, image uh, in, in Zen, both in the din- dynamic form of uh, creating images and in the static form of hanging scrolls on the walls but uh, you know uh, perhaps a little uh, st- stereotypically uh, speaking the heart of a zen temple is the meditation hall which is uh, again uh, expectedly almost completely empty uh, or if it's not empty it's not uh, you know filled uh, with with too much uh, uh, distractions uh, on the other hand, in the example of, of Shingon practice and the specific environment in which this practice takes place, uh, Shingon temples are filled to the brim, uh, especially the, especially the place where the, uh, where the uh, uh, more advanced uh, practices take place with a seat with a three-dimensional, mandala setting uh with a platform in front of the practitioner with two mandalas on the left and right hanging uh one with 414 deities the other with 1416 deities uh, in front of uh, the practitioner then there are uh, uh eternal cos- uh, cosmic buddha uh represented uh, Uh, either in in human form or in symbolic form of an object or as a resounding, silently resounding letter, uh, so-called seed syllable. Uh, Then on one side in the front, there is a burning body of a willdom king with a terrible appearance. On the other side, there's the patriarch staring at you uh, there are so many figures present in the immediate space around the practitioner. Uh, even when you are completely alone, you are surrounded from everywhere. And the, 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 instruction I received, uh, when, when internalizing these innumerable presences was imagine the space in all directions around you is filled with Buddhas, just as a jar is filled with sesame seeds it means there's no free space left anywhere everything is filled to the brim so uh, the the image you get there is is very very different and the uh, the employment uh, of of images in Qingon chingon uh, practice both externally and internally is very very rich and very varied uh, images are used uh, both to uh, both to to concentrate one's mind uh, secondly, to uh, to uh, to produce a certain leaning uh, in mind because of the quality in the image. The image may be pacifying, the image may be terrifying, or the image may be symbolic, abstract. Uh, so uh, then, images are used as uh, as forms of silent sound, such as when uh, letters are visualized, either moving or or static. Uh, images are then used as uh, as uh, ways of uh, reimagining oneself. So, in many many different ways, but eventually all images are let go of, and uh, the uh, the as I would say the 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 supreme state would be one of spontaneous uh, experience that is not structured by uh, superimposition of images, uh, so that. As I've pointed out before, even though during the course of practice very different uh, emphasis may be recognized and the case made that the two approaches are uh, uh, opposed to each other, uh, as you keep moving along, uh, there is more and more uh, uh, reaching a, a a meeting point basically where uh, where the, the the practice experience on one hand and the natural spontaneous unfolding of of uh, everyday experience need to be reconciled so that even zen insistence of dropping body mind must give way to uh you know carry wood chop uh, chop wood carry water sorry and on the other hand the shingon insistence on the imagery uh allegory symbol uh fantastic you know uh, visionary uh uh, I- imagination must also uh, be reconciled with with simple uh, everyday actions. So um, there you have it. That would be my my take on this. Nice. Thank you, uh, Pamela. Anything you wanted to add to that?
1: Maybe just uh, one one footnote um, mm-hmm. in terms of how Dogen um, used imagery to teach his students, right? Um, there was the practice in Song Dynasty China um, and in, by extension in Japan, of using uh, master portraits as uh, kind of posthumous doubles for a for, um, for departed master. Um, and so this, in Dogen's view, um, led to mistaking the back for reality, right? Um, that the, the students uh, may be viewing these images of the master in the wrong light not with the true Dharma eye, and that he is very careful and uh, clever. Actually, in many instances, by inscribing uh, poetic um, inscriptions on the master portraits themselves, um, to kind of deconstruct um, for his students, deconstruct the power of the image. So you have a picture, for example, of Dogen himself sitting on his Dharma seat, uh, but on you know uh, at the top of the hanging scroll you have poetic inscriptions saying, don't take this image of me. I am not the poster child for (laughs) enlightenment, right? Don't take this image at face value. Um, It's just an image, right? Uh, It's not the real thing. So he's very careful. Um, There's a whole, there's a section in the book that I call, um, that I talk about this. Um, There's a kind of visual uh, minesis, but a textual nemesis or nemesis, right? That there's an undercutting textually of the visual messaging, So Dogen is is very careful in um, trying to teach his students to to resist uh, the treachery of the image, you might say. In Kukai's case, conversely, yes, he does say that these mandalas, for example, can enlighten in a single glance, right? That they are powerful. In some cases, they actually uh, communicate the Dharma better than words can in some instances, right? Um, At the same time, in his poetry, Kukai will deconstruct these mandala palaces as but castles in the air. So they both kind of use imagery very skillfully. I would say they both use them as expedient means. Um, uh, but I, I would agree wholeheartedly with Hokai, um that they ultimately, I think, arrive probably at the same place. So. Hmm. Hopefully. <laughs>
2: it would make things easier for us. <laughs>
0: join us for the fourth annual buddhist geeks conference hosted in partnership with mindful cyborgs and shambhala sun from october 16th through the 19th in beautiful boulder colorado This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who wanna engage in interdependent practice.